If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is your typical radio ad while eating a Crunch Bar. This is Automatic of Auto's Used Cars. This weekend only, we're having a whale. Bring the kids. See for yourself. It is huge. You're going to make a big splash. No other dealer can say they have a whale like this. When things sound dull, turn up the fun with Crunch. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Does it ever feel like things just aren't what they used to be. Well, according to Rule Nostalgia, a new book by historian Hannah Rose Woods, yearning for the past is nothing new. Talking to Eleanor Evans on today's podcast, Hannah discusses how we can view Britain in a new light if we better understand how our ancestors were themselves harking back to the past. Hannah, thank you so much for joining the History Extra podcast. And in the opening of your book, you write that it has never been more important to interrogate the ways in which we remember the past. Perhaps we can start with that notion. And what brought you to write about this phenomenon of Britain's historical relationship with nostalgia? Yeah, well, I think the stakes feel very high at the moment. I um, I first got the idea for the book kind of in the middle of the Brexit process um, and there were, you know, big national debates in the media about imperial nostalgia and the extent to which, you know, kind of leavers were perhaps stuck in the past. Um, or also, you know, I think we've also underexplored the ways in which Remainers invoked nostalgia. Um, but, you know, I was very interested 
in that. And then, yeah, COVID happened. Um, and I think we all became intensely nostalgic for a world that we'd, you know, perhaps taken for granted before lockdown. Um, and it really, I think, brought the kind of personal salience of nostalgia to all our lives home to me. Um, and then, yeah, the statue of Edward Colston was tipped into Bristol Harbour and, you know, this very strange, very fraught culture war over British history erupted. And, you know, I think it was very surprising as a historian to be sat at home in lockdown hearing politicians and newspapers, you know, accuse historians and heritage workers of, of trying to do Britain down and and of somehow trashing the past and and saying instead that, you know, British history is this you know, glorious upwards march of, uh, of you know, progress and triumph that we should be really proud of, but also somehow not feel shame for any of the, you know, less glorious episodes too. Yes, I'm sure a lot of our listeners will recognise a lot of those invocations you've just mentioned, and I'm sure we'll dig into them a bit more um, too. But I, I guess it's important to clarify here, as you do in the book, that the vision of Britain that you're looking at is very much an Anglo-centric picture, isn't it? Can you explain the reason for that? I mean, yeah, I absolutely. I do uh, touch on nostalgias for Scottish and Welsh pasts um, and how actually, you know, Scotland and Wales have often framed their nostalgia against Englishness. Um, but I really wanted to tap into the debates that we're, you know, having, say, particularly around Brexit. I think it's a very England-heavy vision of Britain. You know, it's often an imperial nostalgia that people in Scotland and Wales don't really identify. And I think we have a view that actually people in, in Scotland and Wales have kind of moved on from, you know, longing for lost greatness and that they're quite comfortable with their identities as, you know, small to medium nations. And, you know, it's seen as a peculiarly English affliction um, but I did also want to show, um, you know, as we travel back towards the England of the 16th century, that, you know, actually, you know, the Britain that we kind of think of as a much more recent construction than England, Scotland and Wales was in the past, you know, invoked as the most mythically nostalgic nation of, of all, you know, the kind of the ancient Britain of King Arthur that, you know, heroically resisted the Anglo-Saxons. And, and more specifically, then, we're, we're talking about this English-British vision of, of Britain's history. What is it about Britain's history and the way that it's told or received that, that makes it such um, a weapon, if that's the right word, in these mm. so-called culture wars that are playing out at the moment? I mean, I don't actually think Britain or England is a uniquely nostalgic place. You know, I think nostalgia is something that we're all susceptible to. It's it's universal human impulse. And, you know, countries all over the world, both today and in the past, have invoked their own nostalgic histories. But what I did want to do was tap into the debates that we're having about nostalgia and to show that we can view Britain and its history in a new light if we look back to people who themselves were looking backwards. You know, we often forget in our current debates about nostalgia that we're looking back to people who themselves were nostalgic for an even earlier Britain. I think, you know, it also highlights the irony of our perpetual nostalgia. You end your backwards history in the 16th century, as you mentioned, writing that it's during this period that many of Britain's national myths and ideas about English-British identity begin to take shape. Can we hear more of those? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's this, this dual image of, you know, a kind of plucky underdog nation, um, you know, kind of perhaps resisting imperial, you know, kind of the imperial domination of Rome, which was, you know, kind of really invoked in the Reformation. Um but also this sense that lost greatness needed, you know, needed to be recovered. 
um, you know, the British Empire in the 16th century, when it was kind of first being floated as an option for, for England, you know, even before Britain existed, the British Empire was being floated as a way of recovering lost glory. You know, um, John Dee, Elizabeth I's advisor, kind of put it to her and said, you know, if we don't seize this chance to recover you know, the glory that we've lost, the chance will be utterly past and forever. Um, so actually, you know, imperial nostalgia was being being written into Britain and Britain's empire from the very beginning. Um, you know, it's also, you know, the age of Shakespeare in which, you know, these kind of timeless articulations of Britishness and, you know, things that we kind of reach for for patriotic invocations of Britain um, are being produced, like Henry V or, you know, kind of John of Gaunt's speech about, you know, this other reading. But I, I should say, you know, I could have gone back further. We, we could we could go back further infinitely. But, you know, I'm, I'm not saying this is the period in which people start feeling nostalgic. You know, nostalgia was just as important to people in the Middle Ages, you know, just as important right back to classical Greece or Rome. You know, the Odyssey is, is framed around nostalgia. I, I think it's something, you know, people have always been feeling. Moving uh, forwards or backwards, depending on your view from the 16th <laughs> century then, uh, we'll move towards the Victorians. And they had their own anxieties, their own nostalgic complexes, didn't they? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a time of enormous faith in progress, but also enormous nostalgia, Um you know, there was a huge, you know, in this kind of era of industrialization when Britain was becoming, you know, the workshop of the world, there was this huge sense of national pride and, you know, a real faith that technological progress would just transform society, you know, beyond recognition for the better, that, you know, eventually there'd be no poverty, you know, no prob- no social problems. Um, so there's that wild optimism in progress on the one hand, but also in a way that very embracing of progress generated you know, an intense yearning for what was being left behind. Um, you know, kind of William Blake's green and pleasant land that was being destroyed by dark satanic mills. And, you know, there was tremendous anxiety about the breakup of rural communities as, as people poured into the anonymity of towns and cities. Um, and it really, it compelled a enormous reassessment of the Middle Ages, um, or, or, you know, a pre-industrial era that they kind of conceptualised as medieval um, so, you know, in the 18th century, this heyday of, of, you know, the age of reason, the heyday of enlightenment, the Middle Ages have been seen as, you know, the supposedly dark ages of, you know, barbarity, backwardness, religious superstition. Um, and they, they you know, they idealised classical Greece and Rome. But by, you know, by the time that industrialization is really getting into full swing, the Middle Ages are becoming reimagined as this, you know, golden age of, of social harmony, of, of chivalry, of, you know, brave knights, generous hospitality. Um, so the Middle Ages really comes to serve as a protest against the spirit of industrialism. So we have the Victorians invoking sort of Gothic um, ideals and, and medieval chivalry. And then we go to the 1980s and we have people like Margaret Thatcher invoking the ideals of Victorian values. Yeah, well, I mean, Margaret Thatcher said Victorian values, but I think a lot of historians in the 1980s pointed out that, you know, her vision of Victorianism didn't really have much to do with the Victorian era as it actually existed. Um, You know, she was just kind of invoking, you know, respect for authority, family values, traditionalism. um, And actually, you know, a lot of historians at the time pointed out that 
you know, the biggest absence from Margaret Thatcher's vision of Victorianism was the 19th century Conservative Party, Tory Party itself, um, you know, with this emphasis on the upper class duty to care for and to morally guide the poor. Um, and instead, you know, Thatcherism invoked this, this liberal tale of, of self-help and individualism, of, you know, people pulling themselves up by the bootstraps, um, but actually, when she when 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 Thatcher was asked by interviewers to explain what she meant by Victorian values, she she often invoked the experience of her own childhood in um, in Grantham in the nineteen thirties. You know, she'd say, "I was raised by a Victorian grandmother." Um, so I think I think it's it's very interesting that you know often the lessons were given in childhood about the past, you know, perhaps by our family members or in school, really shape. The whole, our worldview, what we think the world is, but you know, often, often it's kind of mixed up in the kind of simple black and white view that, of course, children have of the world and the past as it was actually lived is much more complex. Right. Well, in that case, then how how do you see or do you see over this period the the concept of popular history? How does that sort of ebb and flow? And are people looking to the past more and more in sort of a recreational aspect? Um, in, as well as just sort of, you know, relying on it in some way for political means or otherwise. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the 19th century is this first great age of, you know, history as entertainment. And we kind of see, we see this in almost every corner of Victorian culture. Um, you know, there's a huge appetite for historical novels, you know, by authors such as Walter Scott. Um, you know, there are lots of kind of you know, pageants and plays and historical reenactments. Um, this ap- In the early 19th century, this absolute boom in the popularity of Gothic novels that were set in this kind of very gory and gruesome past. Um, and there's a huge boom in historical tourism. You know, people like, um, you know, as train networks and transport networks improve, you know, people are more able to go and visit sites like Hampton Court or the Tower of London. Um and from the Victorians' perspective, you know, as they saw it living in their, you know, modern technologized world of progress, you know, they could finally start to really indulge their appetite for the the grotesque kind of gruesome horrors of the past because, you know, they seemed utterly remote, you know, an era that was completely finished and, you know, it wasn't, wasn't really threatening the present in any real sense. And as well as these ideas of Britain on an imperial stage, then a sense of sort of the, its global identity, there's also... Um, the phenomenon of the the land changing and the country mm. is, itself changing. What what was going on there? I mean, I think we think of you know nostalgia for the countryside and changing landscapes as, as quite a modern phenomenon. You know, perhaps something from the second half of the twentieth century. And you know, we tend to view anything you know certainly before the early twentieth century as you know England as a green and pleasant land. You know where most people were living in villages, you know, in close-knit face-to-face communities surrounded by rolling fields. But, you know, that's not quite the case. You know, Britain and England urbanised very early, you know, at least since the middle of the 19th century, Britain has been more urban than rural in character. Um, And people have, you know, the landscape has always been changing. People have always been looking back to, you know, patches of landscape that don't exist and the ways of life that were associated with them. Even in the 18th century, uh, with the Enclosure Acts, it saw, you know, open fields and common land turned into privately owned farms. You know, there was a huge amount of anxiety about how that was changing the look and feel of the English countryside. And, 
how with that came the loss of people's traditional identities. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. You know, we're all susceptible to nostalgia. And I'm not saying nostalgia is a bad thing. You know, sociologists and psychologists, you know, really emphasise that it has really positive psychological functions for us. You know, when we look back to stories where we where we feel good about ourselves and we root ourselves in narratives of, you know, where we've come from and who we are, you know, it provides a really stable base from which we can, you know, actually feel more able to go out and face the unknown and step into the future. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If that's one sort of form of nostalgia for something generally perceived as good in, in timeless. quotes timeless yeah, yeah. um yeah. There, there was this really interesting phenomenon I, I found so fascinating that some people or, or some groups weren't idealizing the past in the sense or longing for it they'd fully subscribed to the idea that it was much much harder or much more grueling but they were more yearning for the ways in which people dealt with such hardships what what sort of factors are at play there yeah i think this has been um something that has been particularly noticeable around COVID. I think, you know, we have nostalgia for the blitz spirit, for stiff upper lip, stoicism, you know, muddling through in the face of adversity. And, like, you know, I think there's there's a real yearning for the hardships and struggles of previous generations. But, you know, I think the perpetual irony there is that, you know, all of us edit out the pain in our memories. You know, we, we can't remember what it felt like to feel pain. And, you know, there's always a tendency for people to look back and say, oh, they don't make them like they used to, or, you know, kind of, you know, it's it's just a constant tendency for every generation to, you know, berate youngsters as as coddled and, you know, spoiled and pampered and to, to look back to kind of good old-fashioned discipline and, and simplicity and traditionalism. You also consider how, across these various eras, 
historians might come up against these instances of nostalgia or myth-making. Could you give an example of when something might have been debunked or overturned? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, a particularly interesting moment is in the wake of the First World War, when, you know, the kind of Victorian attitude towards history that, you know, politicians and educators invoked was, you know, the traditional drum and trumpet, you know, our island story, you know, this kind of Whig history of, you know, unfolding British greatness that, you know, really, you know, said to people, look, here are the amazing achievements of of previous generations who've gone out, they've, you know, expanded an empire, you know, they went out exploring, buccaneering, um, and, you know, you, they wanted to raise a new generation who'd follow their forebears' example in expanding and defending empire. Um, but, you know, I think there was a real, in the wake of the First World War, a real feeling that these supposedly heroic tales had sent people into the trenches on the promise of glory, and it had just, you know, led to devastation on an unimaginable scale. And people felt deeply betrayed by these narratives they'd been sold by the ruling elite. So we start to see in the 1920s, um, you know, a different kind of history bubbling up that's taking aim against this patriotic myth-making. Um, so, for example, uh, Listen Straight to These Eminent Victorians, which kind of you know, had some biographical sketches of Victorian, you know, titans like Florence Nightingale and, and General Gordon. Um, you know, people were deeply shocked by the idea that you, you wouldn't be reverential, you know, in, in your biographies. Um, and also books like 1066 and all that, um, which just, you know, kind of took down the culture of Victorianism and imperialism with just silliness. So you've talked a little about war, about these military moments becoming prime targets for a focus of nostalgia, or for times of hardship or when Britain's overcome. What sort of other aspects were ripe for the same sort of yearning or, or caused these bubbles of nostalgia in the periods you're looking at? Well, I think a huge recurring theme is a sense of lost community and nostalgia for a time when you know people kind of looked out for one another, when there was mutual aid, where you know everyone knew their neighbours and left their doors unlocked. Um, and I think this really this really bubbles up in a huge way um, in the wake of the Second World War and, um, you know, all the kind of you know, this era of modernised uh, modernization and modern architecture, modern design, um, you know, new towns springing up, high-rise flats. And I think there, is, there was a real sense in the period that, and which is, is a, a narrative I think that we still have today, that that was the era in which community was lost. You know, people look back and really idealised the close-knit face-to-face communities and industrial towns in back-to-back terraces and and tenements and slums. Um, But, I mean, actually, I think it's it's worth asking whether that depends on a kind of myth of the good old days that never really existed. Um, I think, actually, you know, I I look at a lot of working-class autobiographies, you know, testimonies of ordinary men and women, and they actually say that, you know, they really liked their new, more spacious housing and their clean flats and that actually, you know, the enforced proximity of slum communities really had its drawbacks. There was a total lack of privacy. You know, actually, they kind of, they embraced these changes. But at the same time, of course, that generated huge nostalgia for what, you know, the good things that they had left behind. Um, so I think there's a, re- a real you know, complexity there. It's never simply a straightforward case of, you know, the good old days or the bad old times. Yes, as you say, a bit of a pick and mix going on there. 
Um, and to, to your sources, then, you just mentioned um, a lot of the people that you're looking at. Can I ask about the mass observation? Yeah, it's a, it's a social research project um, that kind of ran for several decades in the early 20th century um, that sought to kind of just, just observe the texture of everyday life. You know, to you know, diaries were sent out to, you know, a kind of just a range of ordinary men and women asking them, you know, sometimes just to write a diary, sometimes to answer specific questions, um, and it's just, it's a fascinating archive for historians to map the changes that people were living through and the ways in which they responded to them. I think one of the fascinating um, kind of moments looking at mass observation is, um, you know, in, in the wake of the Second World War, kind of late 1940s, early 1950s, um, you know, we look back to that period now and think, well, that was just, you know, moments after, you know, our finest hour in, in quotation marks. Um, and, you know, there's often a kind of small C conservative narrative that it's been, you know, one one long decline from there. But actually you go back to like, you know, the late 1940s and a lot of mass observation diarists are saying things like, God, I don't know what's become of the youth today. God, there's so much crime everywhere. Everything's going in the wrong direction. You know, it's a, it's, it's a fantastic insight into the kind of age-old human tendencies. So something I really wanted to pick up on is this idea of people who were coming to Britain, making Britain their home and seeing Britain as a motherland due to um, empire, due to um, the way that they mm. had been told about Britain and the various aspects of nostalgia. Yeah, there. I mean, you know, I, I look at the nostalgias of the Windrush generation um, arriving in Britain, you know, throughout the second half of the 20th century Um and the really complex layers of nostalgia, you know, not just for nostalgia for their the homes they'd left behind in the Caribbean, um, but also the, a kind of nostalgic, a, a real sense of loss for their idea of what Britain was before they came to Britain. Um, you know, people had had, you know, British patriotism instilled in them by Britain's empire builders in Britain's colonies. You know, they'd been taught that it was it was a loving motherland um, that they would be embraced by. And I think the disillusionment that a lot of migrants felt when they moved to Britain, that actually this, this wasn't the case at all. Um, and, you know, particularly for soldiers who had, you know, fought in the Second World War, many of these men had spent time in Britain while they were undergoing military training. And, you know, pe I think people had, in the main, really welcomed them and made them feel at home. And then... They arrived again a few years later after wartime and found that these kind of this bond of camaraderie had suddenly been withdrawn and that the people were beginning to see immigration in, in a new and more negative light. Um, but I did also, um, you know, in that section, just just want to highlight that there isn't anything particularly unique about the nostalgias that immigrants feel Um you know, we like we all have the experience of leaving leaving a home that we can't quite return to. You know, even if we go back to the same place, you know, we've you know we've been changed in the intervening years. Our homes have changed in the intervening years. You know, I think the post-war years are a period of you know growing anxieties about immigration and growing racism. But actually, a lot of people in Britain were going through the exact same experiences. Um, if you know moving to new communities, seeing their old, you know, tenement communities or, you know, terraced houses being torn down. And, you know, there are a lot of people that, you know, 
had left a home that they couldn't return to. If I can return then to an idea that you mentioned at the top of the interview, uh, this idea that nostalgia can maybe assuage a sense of shame with one's past. And as you said, it's not necessarily a uniquely British impulse, but one that is at play with a lot of the more challenging history that you're writing about. Where particularly in British history do we see nostalgia playing this role in combating shame? I mean, all sorts of moments, really. But I think an interesting one is um, to go back to the middle of the 16th century um, and to look at the Reformation and, you know, the waves of iconoclasm that saw, you know, the dissolution of the monasteries, you know, these these beautiful old buildings systematically demolished, um, you know, the interiors of churches kind of smashed to pieces, you know, stained glass torn down, statues pulled down and damaged um and yeah I mean for a lot of people that was their real moment of pride in breaking away um from from Roman Catholicism but for a huge amount of people that was an you know caused an intense source of loss and was a real you know it was kind of really seen as shameful that Britain had destroyed so much of its heritage um and it's a period in which there are more and more antiquarians and historians trying to record these traces of the past before they were lost forever. And, you know, they're really lamenting in particular uh, the destruction of books in England's monastic libraries and saying, you know, this is a national tragedy that in our, you know, moment of religious enthusiasm, we just kind of destroyed swathes of medieval learning. Um, But also, you know, there was just a huge sense of nostalgia for, for lost ways of life and a sense that something really important had been lost. So what about someone who says that this myth-making is sort of inalienable or essential in terms of human nature? You know, we're all susceptible to nostalgia. And I'm not saying nostalgia is a bad thing. You know, sociologists and psychologists, you know, really emphasise that it has really positive psychological functions for us. You know, when we look back to stories where we where we feel good about ourselves and we root ourselves in narratives of, you know, where we've come from and who we are, you know, it provides a really stable base from which we can, you know, actually feel more able to go out and face the unknown and step into the future. Um, And I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't do that on a personal level, but I think that's very different to investing the national past with that same sense. You know, I think I don't think we have to chastise people or even ourselves for feeling nostalgic, but we do need to balance that against, you know, the knowledge that, you know, our impulse to rose tint the past, you know, is very different to, you know, history in an, in an academic sense. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't personally think it needs to feel like an existential threat to confront, you know, the, the things we'd first been told about British history. And so how can historians, if, if they should, um, work with this phenomenon? How can they challenge that notion that the idea that history isn't a warm bath? I mean, I hope it's reassuring for people to read that we've we've always been doing this, that this isn't somehow a kind of new and terrifying phenomenon. Um, but, you know, all I can do as a historian is point out the complexity of the past and, and the good along with the bad. Um, and actually to historicise, you know, the experience of us living in the present, you know, to show where where these ideas and myths we've been given have come from. That was Hannah Rose Woods, Rule Nostalgia, 
A Backwards History of Britain, is published by W.H. Allen and is out now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.